Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, we're in Genesis chapter 44 today, and as we turn to the scriptures, I'd like you to imagine living with regret for 22 years. And some wife will say, well, his name is actually Robert. We've been married for a lot longer than that, but yes, I can imagine living with regret for more than 22 years. But seriously, I want you to, to imagine having done something really awful to someone and then living with that on your conscience for 22 years. Maybe you lost a sibling over it. You're no longer in contact with that sibling. Uh, maybe your parents are heartbroken over what's happened to their family. Those who were in on it never speak of it, but a cloud of guilt hangs over them all. Now, I've just described, of course, Judah, one of the ten sons of Jacob, who were responsible for the enslavement of their brother Joseph. But I might just as easily be speaking of someone here today who's carrying guilt over something that happened a long, long time ago. The question is, how can we be set free from such a burden, from memories that haunt, from words and actions that can never be taken back and now have festered for years? Today's passage shows us a way out of a lifetime of regret. It's a road called repentance. And it can be a scary road to walk, but as we'll soon see, it's the surest way to bring about healing for the deepest wounds that we inflict on one another. As we've seen in recent weeks in our study of the life of Joseph, uh, the interactions of Joseph's brothers with this Egyptian ruler that Pharaoh has called Asenath Panea have stirred some things that they've tried very hard to forget. The way this ruler knows things about them, the way he plays games with them, the way he keeps them on edge, keeps them off balance, makes them wonder if God is, is going to repay them for selling their younger brother Joseph into slavery 22 years before. They don't know if this guy is going to sell them the grain they need to keep their families alive in this time of famine, or if he's going to take their money, steal their donkeys, and throw them into prison. They've already admitted to each other that it would serve them right if God allowed that to happen after all that they had done to their little brother Joseph. Little do they know that this Egyptian is Joseph and that he understands everything they're saying to each other in Hebrew, and it's this this expression of feelings of remorse or feelings of guilt that offers Joseph a glimmer of hope as he sends them off to Canaan with sacks full of grain. But he demands that if they return asking for more grain, they must bring their youngest brother Benjamin with them on their next journey. 
Now, they're on the verge of starvation. Probably another year has gone by. They're in year two of the famine, and, and they need more grain. And so with Judah guaranteeing the young Benjamin's safety, their father Jacob reluctantly agrees to send Benjamin with the other brothers to Egypt so they can acquire more grain. The Egyptian, as we saw last week, treats them with mercy and grace. He lavishes them with a feast, and it's uncanny the way he seats them in exact birth order and, and then pays special attention, showing special favor to Benjamin, the youngest, who happens to be his full brother, the other son of Jacob and his favorite wife, Rachel. And then, to the great relief of all 11 brothers, uh, Joseph orders their sacks to be filled with grain and sends them on their way home to Canaan. But before they get too far, Joseph will put them to the test. Now, he put them to the test back in chapter 42, as Pastor Brian showed us a couple of weeks ago. But if that was a test, this is the final exam in chapter 44. He wants to know if they merely feel guilty about what they did to him all those years ago or whether they have <clears throat> truly changed, whether they've truly repented. And Joseph's test of his brothers affords us an opportunity to, to test whether we truly understand what repentance is all about. Repentance is important for our relationship with God, but it's also the only way back from a lifetime of living with regrets. So let's look at the test that Joseph sets up for his brothers here in Genesis 44, and along the way we'll make some observations about how their responses teach us about true repentance. So we pick up right where we left off last week, Genesis 44, verse 1, <clears throat> where it says, Then he commanded the steward of his house, so this is Joseph commanding his servant, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, <clears throat> and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. So he's giving back the money they paid for the grain, just the way he did the first time. And, he says in verse 2, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. As we're going to learn later, this is the cup of divination, which apparently Egyptian rulers had. Not that Joseph had to engage in divination because he heard things from God directly. <clears throat> but the Egyptians were known for using cups like this to put maybe silver coins or gold coins in there and then pour water and a little bit of oil and then watch the way the light refracted and they would kind of like read tea leaves sort of that way and, and try to divine things using this cup of divination. Well, that's the cup, Joseph's special cup that gets put in the sack of the youngest of the brothers. And it says um, that... Uh, the, the servant did as Joseph told him, put the, the cup in that sack. And as soon as the morning was light, verse 3, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And it says in verse 6, when he, when the steward overtook them, he spoke these words to them. He follows the script. You have done evil. You have repaid evil for good. Now Joseph knows they're not guilty of the evil he's accusing them of here. Uh, the brothers know they're not guilty of stealing the Egyptian's cup. But Joseph knows, and the brothers know, 
they have done evil. They have repaid evil for good. And for 22 years, they have carried that heavy weight on their consciences. And their every interaction with this Egyptian ruler kind of twangs their guilty consciences. At their first meeting, they were accused of being spies. And they had to tell the story about how they were sons of one father. There were 12 of them. Uh, Ten of them were present. One was no more, and they were responsible for him being no more. And the youngest was at home with dad. And, and they were thrown in jail for three days while the Egyptian decides whether to believe their, their spies or not, whether to believe their story. He says, finally, that he'll keep one of the brothers, Simeon, a prisoner. But they must prove that they're telling the truth by bringing the youngest brother back with them to Egypt the next time they come. And they say to one another, this is happening to us because God is, is punishing us because of what we did to our brother when we sold him into slavery, even though we saw the distress of his soul. They see the Egyptian toying with them as a reckoning for their brother's blood. And Joseph hears all this, so he knows they're already feeling guilty. And now as they're on their way home for the second time, Joseph sets them up for another false accusation. But the accusation isn't really about the cup that Joseph has planted in Benjamin's sack of grain. The accusation is really just another way of twanging their consciences for what they're really guilty of. And so they hear this Egyptian steward say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? You have done evil. And they know it's true. They may not have stolen the Egyptian's cup, or at least they're pretty sure none of them have, but they know what evil they are guilty of, selling their youngest brother into slavery. They know the guilt they feel in having led their father to believe that Joseph had been torn to shreds by wild animals all those years ago. Joseph knows how guilty they feel. He knew it from their first visit, how guilty they felt. And he's purposely turning up the heat on them again with this accusation, this new accusation, causing those old regrets to well to the surface again. God is letting this happen because of what we did all those years ago. But Joseph isn't about to let them off the hook just because they feel bad. He's going to push them hard to find out if they've really repented of what they did to him. Because here's the first observation we need to make from this text, and that is that repentance is not just about feeling guilty. Repentance is not just about feeling guilty. It's not just about having bad feelings or, or feelings of remorse for what you did. You can feel really, really bad about something you once did, but it doesn't mean you've truly repented. And until you do truly repent, you're probably not going to get much relief from the regrets that you carry. An adulterer can feel really, really bad about betraying his wife, but he shouldn't expect to be relieved of his guilt if he keeps seeing the other woman. An addict can feel really bad about how her addiction has hurt her kids and wrecked her marriage and, and, and destroyed her parents' trust in her, but there will be no relief if she keeps getting high. A gossip might feel terrible about having damaged another person's reputation, but shouldn't expect the other person to ever trust them again just because they feel bad about what they did, especially if they keep on gossiping. Somebody has said that guilt is like the odorant in natural gas. You know that natural gas is odorless. Did you know that? It, it has no smell. And so if natural gas uh, seeps into your house and, uh, and you don't know it, it could poison you to death. It could 
fill up your house and an open flame could ignite it and blow up the whole place. So that's why they put this stinky stuff, this odorant in natural gas. So you'll know when you have a leak. So that when you smell that horrible smell, you'll be compelled to say, oh, something's wrong here. There must be a leak. We've got to take care of this before it's too late. Well, it stinks to feel guilty, doesn't it? But if you don't respond to that guilt and do something about it, that, that guilt isn't going to do you much good. If you get used to the stink and you just decide to put up with it, well, you know, that guilt will be toxic. It'll poison you. And, and it might just build up to the point where the whole thing explodes on you. You see, repentance is not just about feeling guilty. Just because you have regrets about something doesn't mean you've actually repented of it. Joseph seems to understand that, and, and he's going to push his brothers hard to see if they have more than just guilt feelings over what they did to him all those years before. So the test continues as they protest the accusation that they've stolen the Egyptian's cup. In verse 7, they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Remember their protest in, in their first trip? We're honest men. We're honest guys. Uh, far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Remember the first time when we got all the way back to Canaan and the money we paid you for the grain we found back in our sacks? Well, we brought that money back with us when we came back to Egypt and we brought as much money again so we could buy more grain. How then should we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Why would we do that? We're such honest guys. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. The brothers are so sure that they haven't stolen that silver cup that they say, look, search our stuff. If you find it with one of us, that person should be put to death, and the rest of us will be your slaves forever. Now, the steward, Joseph's servant, makes a counterproposal. He says, ah, let it be as you say. In other words, let there be consequences, but doesn't have to be as drastic as what you've described. Uh, he says, uh, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So, you know, he knows that Benjamin has the cup. So he's saying, look, just Benjamin will stay behind me and be a slave, uh, will, be, will, will be my slave and stay behind here in Egypt. The rest of you can go home to dad. He's setting this up to be a test exactly parallel to what happened 22 years before. When for 20 pieces of silver, they forsook their brother and sold him off to be a slave in Egypt and the rest of them went home to dad. And, and, and the question here is, you know, they're being offered something even better than 20 pieces of silver. They're being offered their freedom. So the stakes are even higher this time. Will the brothers resort to their old ways, selling out their brother and breaking their father's heart all over again to save their own skins? We're about to find out. Because in verse 11 it says, Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched. The steward searches, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, right on down the line. You can feel the tension building. Not him. Nope, not him. Not him, not him, not him. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Oh, no. The youngest one. The one that dad didn't want to even send to Egypt because he was afraid he was going to lose him the way he lost his brother Joseph. And it says, then they tore their clothes. Every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Tearing their clothes seems to be a genuine expression of grief. 
at the thought that they might lose Benjamin to be a slave forever to this Egyptian. Their reaction is the same as Jacob's was 22 years before when they had presented him with Joseph's beautiful coat of many colors stained with blood. And Joseph had assumed that his son had been torn apart by wild animals. It says on that occasion that Jacob had torn his clothes in grief. The brothers are that bothered about what might become of Benjamin. And rather than going on their way back to Canaan without Benjamin, every one of them, they all load up their donkeys and return to the city to see how they might advocate before the Egyptian to secure the release of their brother. And verse 14 says, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. I wonder if Joseph must have thought to himself, how many times is this dream going to come true? You know, that dream he had as a 17-year-old that his brothers and his parents would bow down before him. Here for the third time, his brothers are bowing down before him. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? He's playing the Wizard of Oz here or something, you know. It's like Joseph didn't practice divination. He didn't have to. God spoke to him directly, but he's playing the part of this grand Egyptian poobah as if, don't you know that I know everything? You can't pull anything over on me. And Judah said to him, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose cup that, in whose hand the cup has been found. See what he says there? Not, well, you caught us, you know, we're guilty. You caught us red-handed. No, he says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Remember back in chapter 42, Joseph had accused them of being spies. They knew they weren't guilty of that. But they said to each other, God's getting back at us for what we are guilty of, selling our brother into slavery. And here, they're accused of stealing a silver cup. Well, Judah knows that they're not guilty of that. Benjamin probably didn't steal the cup. They don't know how that cup got in his bag. Nonetheless, Judah declares that all this is happening because God has found us guilty. Their sin against their brother all those years ago has finally caught up to them. That's an important admission. But you know what? It's not yet evidence of true repentance on their part. Because if observation number one is that repentance is not just about feeling guilty, observation number two is that repentance is not just about getting caught. Repentance is not just about admitting that you're guilty. A lot of people get caught, but never truly repent. You can get caught cheating on your spouse. You can get arrested for possession of illicit drugs. You can be confronted by that friend for gossiping about her. But getting caught, even combined with feelings of regret for what you've done, doesn't necessarily mean that you've truly repented yet. Let me illustrate it this way. In January of 2018, I officially became a heart patient. Had a little heart attack. Had to have two stents. And that set off a whole series of events which led to, you know, AFib, which led to an ablation in 2019, which led to a second ablation in 2020. And since the end of 2020, everything's to be sorted out and I feel really great ever since. But in January 2020, 
when I was being released from the hospital, any heart patient can identify with this, and did you know there are about 600,000 people a year that have heart bypass surgery every year, and there are a whole bunch more than that that have stents, like, like me. But when you become a heart patient, you have a heart attack, or you, you have to have clogged arteries cleaned out or bypassed, when you're getting discharged, they read you a riot act, as if to say, you've been caught, you're guilty, your lifestyle has contributed to this. And you've got to change, you know, and they give you this whole list of pages of lifestyle changes that you need to make. You've got to cut out salt. You've got to, you've got to lose some weight. You've got to cut out, you know, you know, you've got to bring down your cholesterol and control your blood pressure and you better get exercise and, and you've got to, uh, you know, get appropriate sleep because if you don't change your life, you're going to be back here again and, and, and you could shorten your life. Change or die. That's basically the message. And you feel guilty, right? And, and you, you admit that, okay, okay, I, I, I got caught. Uh, I'm guilty. But you know what they say? According to uh, Dr. Edward Miller, who is uh, the uh, CEO of a hospital and uh, dean of medical school at Johns Hopkins University, done studies that have found that even though heart patients are read the riot act that way, 90% of them don't change. 90%. He says, we don't understand it, but most people don't really change. You see, repentance is not just about feeling guilty. Repentance is not just about getting caught. For repentance to be true repentance, there must be actual change. A change of heart and mind that leads to a different course of action. And Joseph is getting a glimmer of that in verse 16, a hopeful glimmer that they really have changed because Judah says to him, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. You see it there? Unlike 22 years before, when they were content to abandon their younger brother and leave him in Egypt a slave while they went home to dad, they're saying, no, you, you, you will all be your slaves. We're, we'll be slaves along with him. None of us are going home to dad without him. There's a real change that's being signaled here. The irony is that they're offering themselves as slaves to the brother they once sold into slavery. Joseph wants to be sure of what's happening here. And so he tempts them again with their freedom. And he says, far be it for me that I should do so. I don't want to keep all of you. No, no, no. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. Just, just give me Benjamin, the youngest one. But as for the rest of you, go up in peace to your father. Go home to dad. Then Judah went up to him and said, and this is one of the most impassioned speeches you'll find in all of the Old Testament. Oh, my Lord, Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you're like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, remember this, the first time we came to Egypt, we, you asked us saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father and an, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, 
unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, the cupboards are bare, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. You'll send me to an early grave. And here Joseph learns for the first time what his father Jacob thought had happened to him all those years ago. He was led to believe that he had been torn to pieces by wild animals. He's, his dad thinks I'm dead, Joseph is realizing. But he also learns that these men standing before him are determined not to put the old man through all that again. Now, therefore, Judah says, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, we go home without him. Then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For our, your servant became a pledge of safety to the boy. I, I personally became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And now jo Judah makes an impassioned plea, a, a, a proposal that demonstrates the depth of the change that has taken place in him. He says in verse 33, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back to his brothers with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah's saying, let me stay here and be your slave in Egypt. Just make sure the boy goes back home with with my brothers to, to his dad. This is really amazing because if you remember back in Genesis chapter 37, it was Judah himself who had proposed, oh, let's not kill our brother and have his blood be on our hands. Let's just sell him to the Ishmaelites, sell him into slavery. And they did, that was Judah's recommendation to do that. And now here's that same Judah and instead of abandoning his brother in Egypt, he's offering himself as a substitute for the boy. And it isn't interesting that of all the brothers, it's Judah who offers himself as a substitute. Because we know that it's from Judah's tribe would one day come Jesus, a direct descendant of King David, who would offer his life on the cross as the only sufficient substitute for us all. One life of infinite worth willingly offered up to pay for the sins of all of us. Judas says, I will be his substitute. But you get the impression on this occasion at least that if Judah had not stepped up this way, any of the other brothers might have. Because if Judah is representative of all his brothers, and he seems to be on this occasion, then it's no wonder that Joseph reacts to Judah's speech as he does in the next chapter. So you have to stay tuned for next week. Because he's seeing true repentance in his brothers. They will not forsake their little brother here 
and leave them a slave in Egypt, not even to save their own skins. And they will not put their father through the grief of losing another of his sons. They are changed men. Because here's what I want you to understand today. Repentance is not just about feeling guilty. And repentance is not just about getting caught. The bottom line is that repentance is an about face. It's an about face. When I was a freshman in college, at Wheaton College, all freshman men were required to do a year of Army ROTC in hopes that many of us would, would continue on and, and eventually become officers in the Army. So as freshman men, we all took the oath, we put on the uniform, and we learned how to drill, among other things. We did other things in ROTC, but we learned how to drill. Every Thursday morning was, was drill morning. So we learned how to do, you know, right face, about uh, left face. My favorite command was about face because that was, you know, sort of the trickiest. Uh, and, and we learned that, you know, when you're going to do about face, you start at attention with your feet at a 45-degree angle. And then you get the command about face and, and you put your right toe, see if I can still do this, put your right toe behind your left heel and then you pivot all the way around. That was bad but you pivot all the way around until you're facing the exact opposite direction. You're supposed to land with your feet still at a 45 degree angle. So you did a complete about face. You did a turnaround and that's essentially what repentance is. It's a reversal of direction. In fact, in the Hebrew, whenever you find the word repent translated in the Old Testament, it's translating a Hebrew word that means to turn, to change your mind. When you find the word repent in the New Testament, it's translating a Greek word, metanoia, which means, again, to change your mind. Biblically speaking, repentance is a change in the way I think that leads to a radical change in my attitudes and actions. I know I have repented not just when I feel bad for what I did, not just when I admit that I did wrong, but when by God's grace I get completely turned around and headed in the right direction as witnessed by my actions. Repentance is, is about, isn't just about feeling bad or admitting guilt. It's about a changed life. It's when I turn away from the sinful course of action I've chosen for myself and I get realigned with what God wants to do for me, in me, and through me in Christ. You know, repentance is a big deal in Scripture. Jesus' first public sermon, basically the theme of the sermon was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus said that he came to call sinners to repentance. In Luke 15, Jesus says that there is joy in heaven when a single sinner repents. At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples that the scriptures foretold that the Christ had to suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. On Pentecost Sunday, Peter called his listeners to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance is a big deal that hardly gets talked about anymore. The gospel that often gets preached these days is a kind of a watered-down gospel that says, well, you know, come to Jesus. God loves you just as you are and wants to save you, so why don't you trust in him? But that gospel doesn't say what he wants to save you from or what you're supposed to trust him to do for you. The true gospel says, you know what? 
Jesus loves you, but your sin has got to go. Your sin is what stands between you and your loving Heavenly Father. And Jesus loves you so much, he gave his life to pay the penalty of your sin, the penalty your sin deserved, and he came alive again to empower you to live a whole new way, no longer in the grip of sin, but under the power of his spirit, a life pleasing to God. The Christian life is not just about feeling bad for what you did. It's not just admitting that you're guilty before God. It's a whole about face, letting God have his way, reordering your life, turning you around and setting you off on a completely new direction. And it looks a whole lot like Judah and the other brothers of Joseph at the end of this chapter. Men in whom God has worked to bring about a radical change. The proof that repentance is real is the changed life that will result. And the question is, is your repentance real? Has a real change taken place? The truth of the matter is that a lot of people like to talk about repentance, but they're really just playing at it, not truly repenting. As illustrated in the TV drama, The Good Wife, where one of the main characters is a politician by the name of Peter Florick, has served a jail sentence because of a sex scandal and he's just been released from jail and he's trying to revive his political career and and reconcile with his wife, Alicia. And so he pays a visit to an African-American pastor by the name of Pastor Isaiah and says he needs his spiritual guidance. And the pastor glares at Peter and says, so you want to use me? And Peter answers honestly and says, well, yeah, it'll look good if I'm embraced by you. Our polling numbers are below par with African-American women. And the pastor says, I know. uh, So so is that your latest scheme, Mr. Florek? Brutal honesty? And Florek says, I know you think I'm just a shallow, narcissistic politician. And you know what? I agree with you. But I've been in prison for the last eight months. I've been away from my family, from my life. I've seen everything I've built turn to dust. And the pastor sarcastically interrupts and says, until one day you found the glorious words of the gospel. And he says, I am not a photo op. I cannot be charmed. I can't be finessed. I can't be yupped. You have done wrong. And Florek says, I know I have. The pastor says, your marriage is in trouble. I know you think it isn't, but it is because you don't acknowledge true repentance. The politician says, tell me, what do I have to do? The pastor says, do you love your wife? He says, yes. Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? And the politician uncomfortably says, I don't know what that means. To which the pastor responds, do you want to know what it means? And he firmly responds, no. The pastor smiles and says, please, God, make me good. Just not yet. And then he says, you're afraid of change. But your wife won't love you. She won't return to you until you change. So do you want to change? That's the real question for any of us. Not just do you feel guilty. Not just do you admit that you are guilty. But do you want to change? Are you ready to let God change your heart, change your direction, change your life? Because when you come to Christ in repentance and faith, he will do it. The scripture says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Repentance is the about face that opens the door to healing and to hope and to forgiveness.
Let's bow in an attitude of prayer. I'm not going to ask anybody to make a knee-jerk reaction today. But rather, I'm going to ask you to give serious consideration to that question. Are you ready to change? Are you ready not just to feel bad, not just to admit that you've done wrong, but are you ready to let God have his way and to make the change in your life that he wants to make? Father, I thank you for the beautiful illustration of repentance that we find here in the pages of Genesis 44 for the evidence of genuine change in the lives of these brothers of Joseph. Father, we know that if, if you can change the hearts of, of unrepentant men after 22 years and bring about true repentance and a true change, you can do it in us. And so, Father, we come before you, and, and Father, I pray for everyone who's listening to this message today. And I pray that you will bring conviction to our hearts where we need to feel it. Guilt stinks, but Lord, I pray that you'd help us not to ignore the stink, but to realize that the stink, the guilt, is driving us to act because something's wrong. What's wrong is, is that something stands in the way of our relationship with you. Something has, has disrupted relationships with others. And Lord, many of us haven't known what to do with that pain, that guilt that we've carried for so many years. But I pray that if it's not right now, that very soon there will come a moment when we're ready to come before you and say, Lord, here I am. I'm ready to change. I repent. I'm ready to let you have your way. I want you to make me new, to set me right, to put my life on the right course, to set me on the right direction in the knowledge that only you can do it because in Christ you've made the way. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.